Welcome to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 72 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, The Right Take on Entertainment. This week we're speaking with Don Graham, the author of an excellent new book on the making of the landmark 1956 film Giant. Think you know everything about James Dean? Oh, you're in for an eye-opening experience, trust me. This week's show is sponsored by The Cosby Show, the only classic sitcom with absolutely zero chance of getting rebooted. Before my chat with Don, I want to share some good news out of Hollywood. How, how refreshing, right? Well, I want to focus on two specific actors who are very different on the surface, but they have something in common. They're not jerks when it comes to talking about politics. There's no name-calling, no cheap insults or other parlor games, and that's amazing. First up is Matthew McConaughey. He appeared at the March for Our Lives a few weeks ago to show his support for those Parkland students who want more gun control. Now, no matter where you stand on the issue of the Second Amendment, McConaughey's comments weren't divisive or cruel they were just plain-spoken and heartfelt. He followed them up with some con- concerns about the group. He thinks they may be trying to take away your guns permanently. Well, <laughs> I know where he's coming from, but it, once again, no matter where you stand on guns in the Second Amendment, what Matthew McConaughey said wasn't crazy. It wasn't vicious. He was just sharing his thoughts. And that brings me to Rob Schneider, who, again, not exactly in the same league as Matthew McConaughey, a funny guy versus a serious actor, but... They've got a similar strain going on with the way they share their opinions. Schneider talked about his old show, Saturday Night Live, and he said, you know what? I'm not a huge fan of the comedy they're doing these days. It's cruel. It's really one-sided. And well, back in my day, we used to do a more balanced approach to political targets, what we hit, what we didn't hit. And well, of course he's right. He's absolutely right. But he didn't do it in a vile way. And actually, he singled out Alec Baldwin, who's getting all sorts of accolades for playing Donald Trump of late. Well, Call Rob Schneider not a fan. He said that that character doesn't work for him, mostly because he knows that Alec Baldwin despises Donald Trump, the real Donald Trump. So when you watch him on on screen, that anger just seeps through in his performance. It doesn't really click. Schneider mentioned how Dana Carvey was much more succinct with his performance, specifically when he covered President Bush, the elder. That performance was goofier. It wasn't as cruel. You could actually have the actor meet the president, and it wouldn't be awkward. Actually, I think President Bush kind of liked Carvey's performance. So he said that was a different era. Now, it doesn't mean you can't do cutting comedy, but there is something to be said about comedy that comes from pain and anger and viciousness. Think about the Book of Mormon, how, uh, you know, I'm sure Mormons weren't exactly ecstatic with that production, but I don't think that the the makers behind the show, who are also the makers behind South Park, I don't think they were looking to go for the jugular. They wanted to make us laugh, first and foremost. That really comes through when you watch a show like The Book of Mormon. Now, I have to say, covering Hollywood for as many years as I have, it's really sad that I have to single out these two performers. They should be the norm, not the exception, but they're not. They jumped out at me, that's for sure, and I think they're jumping out at other people as well. People genuinely like Matthew McConaughey. It's just his whole vibe. He just seems like a regular guy. When he talks, he seems relatable. He doesn't seem starstruck. He also, again, is not insulting half his audience. That's really important. Now, here's the dirty little secret for Hollywood types if they're listening. If celebrities do want to change the world, if they want to change those hearts and minds, they're far better off being effective if they do the Schneider-McConaughey approach. Don't get mean. Don't get nasty. Don't talk down to people. 
share your opinions in a calm, collected way, you might actually open some ears, but that's assuming they really want to do that. Maybe they just want to get some anger out. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. Here's the celebrity tweet of the week. This week's winner is meteorologist and occasional diva Bette Midler. In between her promotional tweets, she likes to flex her serious weather prognostication skills. She's the real deal. That means if there's a day that's atypical for the season in question, she knows deep down it's due to global warming. Here we go. Spring as a season may be dead. 91 degrees in New York City in May. It appears that now we go from winter right into summer. Hashtag Rachel Carson must be spinning in her grave. Remember when we were told that winters were a thing of the past? Good times. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast. The right take on entertainment. My hit tip of the week is Breakdown. I remember loving this thriller when it first hit theaters back in 1997. Kurt Russell stars as a regular Joe whose wife is abducted after their car breaks down. Now, of course, he's as burly and as tough-looking as Kurt Russell, but his character isn't a superhero. He's just like any one of us who gets caught flat-footed by kind of a pretty harsh reality. He's also chased down by some pretty bad villains led by the great J.T. Walsh. This is bare-knuckle entertainment, the kind I just absolutely love, especially on home home streaming services. It clocks in at a really tidy 90 minutes. There's no fat. It's pure muscle and tension. Could you pick apart the plot a time or two? Absolutely. Especially as it gets towards its crazy resolution. But you know what? The movie never slows down long enough to let that happen. And the, the movie ends on one of those moments that you know you shouldn't cheer. It doesn't exactly speak to your better nature, but you can't help yourself. Breakdown is available right now on Amazon Prime. Now let's get to my chat with Don Graham. Don's a veteran journalist and a writer-at-large for Texas Monthly Magazine. But the reason I, I, w- I wanted to reach out to him is he's also the author of a great new book, Giant, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber, and the making of a legendary American film. Boy, that's a great title, even if it's a little bit long. Giant details how the epic movie came to be, how director George Stevens kind of assembled all these different pieces, and the personal dynamics behind the scenes, including some very strange behavior by James Dean. Let me just say it involves urine and it's going to make you wince. You'll be fascinated just how different Hollywood was then during the 1950s at the height of the studio system compared to what it is now where the actors essentially run amok. They're free agents. They do what they want. They say what they want. It's also intriguing how both James Dean and Rock Hudson hid their sexual appetites for so long and so effectively. Now, if you love the movie, and I, one of the reasons why I did this interview and read the book initially was that my dad loved Giant. It's one of his top five films, and of course, that matters quite a deal to me. Dad made me a movie fan first and foremost, and I'm always looking for ways to kind of connect with that and his legacy. Either way, it, this is a must-read. And, you know, if you love the movie, great, but even if you don't, I think you should be fascinated by just how Hollywood worked back then and how there are some similarities to the 50s Hollywood and today. I, I can't imagine anyone reading this and not getting a lot out of it. Here's my interview with giant author Don Graham. Thank you for joining the show. I really enjoyed your book, Giant, and I want to delve into a lot of it. But uh, I guess the best way to start would be to talk about your connection to the film itself. 
Was it a personal favorite? Did the themes connect with you? I know, obviously, uh, you write a lot about Texas, so that's that's a clear that's a clear marker. But to, I know right. everyone has a different connection to certain great films. Uh, I actually, my dad, this was one of his favorite films of all time, and he made me into a movie lover. So I've always had a kind of a connection that way. From your perspective, what was your what was your tie to the film? Well, my tie was uh, all goes all the way back to when I was a teenager. <clears throat> I I was sixteen years old when it came out. And uh, I saw it at the Majestic, which was this great uh, uh, theater in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I was, uh, you know, very impressionable. And I wound up imitating for the rest <laughs> of my life certain of James Dean's characteristic moves in that film. Uh-huh. Uh, but then the story goes on because in 1986, they were celebrating the 30th anniversary of it in Marfa, Texas. And my wife and I went out there. We were on our way to California, but we stopped over. And we actually spent three nights on the ranch where it was filmed. Uh, and we were right uh, quite near the house, which was then the famous iconic house, which was actually a false front house, as everybody, I guess, knows. Anyway, uh, all that were remained were just uh, some, some of the poles and all the siding and everything had fallen away. So it was kind of like a Roman ruin or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it no longer exists now. It's completely gone. So then in 1996, uh, a guy made a documentary film called Return to Giant. And I was interviewed. I was a talk, quote, talking head in that film, uh, in a documentary. And all that time, I could have written a book about Giant because it constantly, you know, was part of my uh, background, and, and I continued to see the film off and on. And then in around 2007, 8, 9, somewhere around there, I started adding it to my syllabus in a course that I teach called Life and Literature uh, of Texas at um, at the University of Texas. And students, the millennials, Responded to it in a way that I find I can I found I found sorry, kind of surprising. They actually they hated the film because of it, well they didn't like it because of its length. And I told them well it's about the length of a UT football game, <laughs> um, but but they uh, they responded to some of the themes in the in the film, and on the basis of kind of their enthusiasm, I thought this is the time to write this book. And so we were coming up on the 60th anniversary, and I didn't hit that mark, but. Uh, well, I was very. Project. It was a great. It was a big project, and it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed everything about that book. Now, you talk a little bit about the millennial reaction, because I'm kind of curious. Because I think sometimes young people today will respond to older art and kind of judge it through a modern prism, and that's not often fair. What what what, what did they really kind of uh, connect with, or what did they really talk about when you watch this film with them? Well, the women in particular talked about what they consider to be the very surprising feminism of Elizabeth Taylor's character. Mm -hmm. And they particularly point to a scene in the film where Elizabeth Taylor uh, wants to join the men, her husband and his buddies, and they're sitting around talking politics. And they tell her that, that, you know, it's men's talk. They don't want that she doesn't know anything about politics. She should go back with the women who are knitting. And she gets mad, and finally Bick, her husband, stands up and says, Leslie, you're tired, which is the classic put-out. And she leaves angry. I mean, she uh, uh, marches up to her room and so on. And the the women are just kind of astounded at that scene because they thought feminism happened in their generation. Mm -hmm. 
Interesting. So the other thing is uh, uh, the race, the whole treatment of race. They connect with that, particularly in the diner scene at the end and the, the uh, uh, discrimination against Mexican-Americans. That was a radical theme for American film in 1956, and it still uh, resonates today with these students. Yeah, you know, I was particularly fascinated by George Stevens and the portrait that emerges from your book. Talk about him as an artist. I mean, he was a fellow who would, you know, stand up to the studio. He wanted to do things on his own terms, but also juggling all these different personalities. It takes, I mean, in a way, that's as much a skill set as actually making a film, just kind of keeping the the whole unit together. Talk about what you learned about him from from writing the book. Well, uh, Stevens is a is a kind of a hard man to get any kind of psychological insight into. He's, he didn't talk much about himself, uh, but he was an absolutely uh, great director and has been somewhat underrated, mainly because of the influence of the French, uh, who um, French critics who don't like him never did like him. But uh, uh, he was a master. He made uh, the three great films: are A Place in the Sun which starred a very young Elizabeth Taylor. And uh, Shane, everybody used to know Shane, great Western, and then Giant. And what he had to do was to, first of all, when he set out to make this uh, film, he was basing it on a novel that nobody in Texas liked. (laughs) Texas hated, well, there were some people who liked it, but the reviewers all hated the book uh, and the Ferber's novel. So... He he was sort of had to overcome that opposition, and he did that brilliantly. And I'll get to the actors in a minute. But what he did was to uh, decide to shoot the film on location in far west Texas in an isolated area, and he he uh, opened up the set, which nobody ever did in those days, and they hardly ever do now. And he used the set, the open set, as a way to kind of advertise the film and to show that the film being, so audiences from West Texas and journalists and so on could see the film being made and could meet these stars, talk to rock cuts. And well, they, they weren't, that's the other thing. They weren't completely fully stars yet. They were, the giant was going to cinch their stardom, uh, in a way that's sometimes not understood today. Anyway, uh, so apart, so that was brilliant. The whole thing of kind of conquering Texas, uh, in a publicity sense, and then uh, he got he had to deal with James Dean, and he had never he had had one method actor, uh, Montgomery Clift, uh, who was kind of a pre-James Dean type, and he got along okay with Montgomery Clift. Although Montgomery Clift later said, "Well, Stevens was not a great director," but in any in any case, he got along with him. But Dean was just about impossible to deal with on a daily basis, and Elizabeth Taylor had her. Uh, anxieties and rock cuts and had his insecurities and james dean had his whatever you want to call it his juvenile delinquency behavior uh and his great talent and so he had to juggle these three uh, uh egos uh which were all all three of them were very needy and all three of them demanded attention from him and at the same time he had to manage this enormous cast and the whole uh, difficulties of shooting in a town of 5,000 people in the middle of nowhere in a, in a summer, in, in a Texas summer. So it was uh, my favorite line in the book almost is the one at the end, the last line, is that he and his 
cameraman, Bob Miller, that they spent the rest of their lives asking each other which was toughest, World <laughs> War II or Giant. <laughs> Well, I wanted to focus a little bit on James Dean, and I have to say, I've never really kind of dug deep into his persona, and your book does that. I mean, just a really tough fellow to get to get to know, a tough fellow to work with. His impromptu uh, bathroom breaks were, I guess, sort of stuff of legends. <laughs> uh, I have to say, I how did your view of the actor, does, does it change after you research a book like this and learn that much about him? Does it make you appreciate what he did more? Uh, you know, you're a you're a, a movie lover as well as an author. I'm just going to hear your take on on James Dean. How well, dug into this. Dean Dean was the one that that cost me the most amount of time working on because there's so much written about him. It's astounding how many books there are and how many uh, memoirs and so on about James Dean. It's astounding. So he was a big. It was a big task. That's why his chapter is the longest one in there. It just took an enormous amount of of. There's an enormous amount of material about James Dean. Put it that way, mm-hmm. and uh, he's uh, really complex, and he'd like to talk about himself, and and there are millions of great photographs of him, and so on. But uh, Dean was uh, he was in, I would say this was his best movie. Now, all, there's a whole there was a generation, and most of them have died off now. They call themselves Deaners. These were mm-hmm. these were people that adolescents, basically. Of course, they grew up but who were absolutely enthralled by Rebel Without a Cause. And that's the James Dean that they really admire, because he was a middle-class kid who's in rebellion against his family. And that, that really touched a nerve. And that became, became part of the iconic picture of James Dean. And is, but he only made three films. He, uh, East of Eden was first. He played the same kind of tortured soul-father-son relationship. Then he did the father-son relationship in Rebel. Uh, but in Giant, he actually played somebody who wasn't James Dean. He played a character who came from a sort of lower working-class, blue-collar type ranch, uh, uh, guy who worked on the ranch and who gets lucky and strikes all, although he's also the hardest-working person in the film. Mm-hmm. We don't see anybody else doing much work. And he goes on to become rich and so on. And one of the ironies of the film now is that a lot of people say that James Dean is the star of the film, but he's not. He's only he's only on camera about 30 minutes out of a three-hour and 18-minute film. But he was so effective, particularly in the early scenes, uh, when he plays this sullen ranch hand who falls in love with, with the wife of the owner of the ranch. And he's... Uh, my one of my one of his great scenes in all of his work, I think, is that time in the film when he goes into his or Elizabeth Taylor goes into the little cabin where he lives, and he's he's engaged in a kind of self help self development. He's got a book there about grammar and good English, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. It's kind of a Jay Gatsby type feeling <laughs> yeah. about him. You know, um, reading about him though, I thought, what would what would the media today do with him? I almost think that we would kind of chew him up and spit him out. I mean, I mean, he would be a sensation, and then we'd analyze him, and would be millions of stories written about him. I, I feel like he wouldn't fare well in, in this sort of our current social media age. You know, that's an interesting idea. I hadn't thought about it, but he, pro- he probably wouldn't because every gesture, every sentence he uttered, and he, he would have... Uh, it's just a different time. He would have said things 
Well, I don't know what he would say now, obviously. Uh, he might just be real boring now. He might just be, you know, online. I don't know how you can compete with these guys online. So so James Dean couldn't have been James Dean now, I'd be my uh, guess. Gotcha. We're talking with author Don Graham, the mind behind the excellent new book, Giant. Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber, and the making of a legendary American film. You know, another thing that really kind of caught me about the book is repressed sexuality. I know we know about Rock Hudson. I wasn't aware of James Dean and his bisexual uh, proclivities at the time. Just from your perspective, studying this era of Hollywood, how do they keep these secrets? It just seems like, you know, Rock Hudson, like people knew and people knew within the industry, it didn't seem like a secret. But to the culture at large, the the media image was rock solid, no pun intended, and and no one knew. I've just had to study the area. How do they keep that from people? It just seemed impossible. Well, uh, the, there just weren't that many sources that would, would that would uh, you know that would publish that kind of information or mm-hmm. that knew about it. And the fan magazines, uh, they they never really went. Out. There was only like one publication in Hollywood in that period, a confidential magazine, which became a great threat to. Uh, both communist uh, and anybody who thought to be a communist or anybody that they could prove was gay. But within the studio system, it, uh, and within the working people in the industry, it was just, you know, nobody talked about it outside. Nobody told to the press because mm-hmm. it would have been, it would have been uh, very costly if they'd have done that. Yeah. Uh, they'd have gotten fired, first of all. Um, and, there just weren't these information sources where everybody's got a camera and everybody, you know, is online telling everything that everybody says. So, again, it was just kind of a protected mm-hmm. environment in a way. Yeah. And uh, and also, the people were innocent about what they saw in films. Uh, most people at that time, there wasn't a lot of information about how, how films were made. There weren't, I, I dare say, there weren't three books in 1956, about the making of films. One of them was great, a, a book called Pictures by Lillian Ross, back in 19, which, which was a piece of reportage. But if you read Pictures, there's nothing in that book that's salacious. There's nothing, and John Houston was the director, and John Houston, you know, had a pretty active life, mm-hmm. uh, romant, romantic life, and there's nothing about any of that. It's just people didn't talk about it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Another thing that really kind of captured my imagination about your book is how, and I guess this is more specifically with Rock Hudson, but I think it echoed other players here. It almost seemed like Rock Hudson was a, was a, a lump of clay, and he shows up, he's this handsome fellow, and then the studio and the directors and the writers and the speech coaches would would kind of work on him until he was this actor, and he was a very good actor. Uh, yeah. I don't get the sense that today's stars are like that. They they strike me as more prepared, more more schooled, or maybe they are that way. I just I want to get your your thoughts on that. Is sort of the stars back then versus the stars today? Is it that much different in, in how much they prepare for a role? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you're right about Rock Hudson. Rock Hudson could barely uh, he he didn't know anything when he uh, showed up at the at the guy who turned out to be his agent. As a matter of fact, he. Uh, the agent took him, Henry Wilson took him to meet a producer named Walter Wenger, and Wenger asked Hudson how old he was, and Hudson turned to his agent and said, how old am I? <laughs> <laughs> because the agent had told him to tell one age rather than another. 
No, he was as green as you could get. Uh, and these actors today, I think some of them, I don't know, I don't know what it is. I think in a way they achieve uh, stardom almost too quickly, but there's not a not a process where they you know, work their way into it. There are a few, I guess, that do. Uh, like Taylor Kitsch is a guy I think that might be working towards stardom, but you never know if he'll make it or not. Yeah. Re- I mean, really. John Hamm's trying to do it right now, getting out of TV in the stardom. I don't think he's going to make it. But anyway, <laughs> it's just my opinion. Uh, a lot of it's just like the latest flavor. The most, you know, they're in some film. They're 18 years old, and suddenly they're multimillionaire, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and of those actors that you named, Elizabeth Taylor had a long apprenticeship. She had made 24 films before she made Giant. Rock Hudson had been working like a dog at Universal. James Dean was the was the guy who hadn't had, but he had been trained. Those other two actors were trained by Hollywood, Taylor. And Hudson, James Dean was uh, uh, trained in New York. He was a member of the, of the uh, actor studio. I mean, he got in it, but he didn't really go. And he was in tons of plays and TV. He was in like thirty television dramas. Uh, that's where he really honed his craft. Hmm. Yeah, uh, I wasn't aware of that background. So, it's very interesting. Yeah, I I didn't know all that either. I I, I didn't know much about James Dean when I started. And when I finished, I thought, maybe I know too much about him. <laughs> I feel like I do, too. <laughs> but he was very, yeah, he was interesting, interesting to read about and write about. Absolutely. Well, one of the things, I, you know, we talked a little bit about sort of the actors and how they worked within the Hollywood system. But the entire Hollywood system was so different then. It was studio-driven. The, the image was everything. And I feel like today's Hollywood is so much different in so many ways. Do you think that the, the modern Hollywood system, for better or worse, allows for better creativity? Do you think it was more it was more flowering back in the 50s? Any kind of sense about then and now? Um, it's a really tough thing to generalize about. I, I don't see... Um, I don't see any... It, it seems to me that, that agents and uh, directors are in charge now. And the mm-hmm. studio system produced a lot of very solid films, in my opinion. And today, it's just, it seems like it's wide open. It's, uh, so I, I just don't get a sense that, you know, it makes any difference if you go to a Warner Brothers film or, or another studio. And then a lot of these films, you can't even figure out where they're coming from. <laughs> they're in, independents, and there's uh-huh. no, so there's no continuity. Uh, there's a great book, the early uh, film, st- well, not early, but several years ago, uh, called uh, The Genius of the System by a guy named Tom Schatz, who's a colleague of mine. And he argues that the studio system was what made American films great hmm. and that it, it wasn't individual geniuses. Yeah, I, I think there's good arguments on both sides of that. And and by the way, I think if yeah. Steven Spielberg got a note from the studio saying, you're costing us too much money, he might chuckle and rip up the note, but that's, maybe it's just the way things <laughs> right, are different right. back then. Uh, you know, right. obviously you, you, you know a lot about Texas, you've covered it. Uh, you've covered these some of these films like Giant. Are there other films that, that you could recommend to us that really, for lack of a better phrase, get Texas more than others, where you can kind of understand the culture and the people? Uh, well, one of the early ones, I think, that gets it, although it was filmed in Arizona, is a Red River, the John Wayne cattle drive movie. That's mm-hmm. um, a favorite, and I think it, it shows something about what was thought what what was thought about Texas and its nineteenth uh, century uh, history uh, of the of the cattle drives and the significance of building a kind of an empire out of cattle. Um, 
and then there's there's a bunch of Texas Texas movies that I that I like. Mm-hmm. Um, I was trying to think the Last Picture Show, for example, oh, yes. is uh, Larry McMurtry Hud. I like Hud a lot. Um, and then there's just some modern ones like Tommy Lee Jones has a wonderful film called The Three Burials of Mel Theodos Estrada. It's not very well known. It's a really good film. There's another film that a lot of people like. I'm not as crazy about it. Called Lone Star. I don't know if you ever saw that one or not. I believe is that John Sales, the director. John Sales, it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought it was the film that tried to include too many different aspects. Mm-hmm. It's just he, he tried he tried to include everything you could think of about <laughs> Texas in that in that one film. Gotcha. Um, so anyway, I don't know of anything right now that's red no, hot that's... coming out. Of te- well. Go ahead. I, say that's a, I was just what I was looking for. I was kind of curious from your perspective. You've got a, a deep, deep sense of the culture there, so I think those are good recommendations. Yeah. Uh, Don, One of the things is ahead, that oh, Go ahead. Well, not many films are being actually shot in Texas right now, and that's because Texas is not giving Hollywood any uh, inducements, financial mm-hmm. inducements to shoot here anyway. Yeah, well, I think the next Texas movie will be shot in New Mexico, I suspect, given the, uh, the tax structure <laughs> there. But, uh, Don, Probably. before I let you go, I wanted to talk about... How giant is age? You know, there's been a lot of great films that just don't age well, and it's not always their fault. They're from an era. The themes maybe don't resonate like they do today. And I think that's not the case with giant. I think there's a lot to be learned from it. From from your perspective, you're talking to one of those millennials who hasn't seen it and maybe is a little shy about the three-and-a-half-hour running time. How would you steer them to giant? What would what, be your, your sales pitch to make sure that they do see this movie? Well, I'd say if you're interested in seeing... Uh, as the story of a family. Uh, that's a, one of the unremarked un, uh, themes of Giant, is, and it, it's the story of a marriage as well. The film covers 25 years, and it's just a study in, in uh, people living in a particular place with a particular mythology and how that mythology affects their lives and how they work, themselves, work their way through to winding up in a place, particularly Big Benedict, the hero, a place that he thought he'd never be, and that was where he has a uh, Mexican-American grandson. Mm-hmm. That that's, that's really touches on where modern Texas is headed, because uh, the Mexican population in Texas is going to uh, uh, eventually outnumber the Anglo population, and Giant seems to be on the, on the leading edge of forecasting that. Hmm. Sometimes great movies just endure for a variety of reasons, so I'm, I'm glad to hear about that. Well... Thanks again, Don, for joining the HitCast. Please pick up a copy of Don's essential new book, Giant, about the making of the great 1956 movie. And there's so much more here. I was really eager to read it, and uh, it certainly satisfied me and then some. Uh, all the best luck with your book, and uh, maybe we can connect again down the road for other projects. Thanks a bunch. I really enjoyed talking to you. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. You know what this is? A commercial? Right. And you know what that means. (gasps) Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight, one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. 
You know what this is. A commercial? Right, and you know what that means. <gasps> Time for a snack? Wrong. I want you to do some heart-healthy exercise. Yes, you! Try some seated leg extensions right now. Just lift each leg up and extend it straight one at a time, six to eight times. I can do that. Yes, you can. Remember, every commercial is a chance to sneak in heart-healthy activity. Visit findexerciseanywhere.com and speak with your doctor to learn more about the risks of heart failure. 